So uh, we've come to the final session of Winter at the Castle 2015. Um, the question and answers. Always, I I think always one of the. I I love this part of the weekend. It can be uh, very enlightening to kind of think further about some of the things that have been said. Maybe things can be re-clarified or uh, expounded a bit further. Or just clarified. Or clarified. (laughs) (laughs) I have a mixture of questions here. Um, Hopefully we will get through all or the majority of them. Um, However, if we don't get to your question, I'm sure John would be happy during lunchtime if you want to approach him and and ask him. That that would be fine as well. Uh I've kind of divided them into questions about Ephesians and questions uh, outside of and other books of the Bible, along with some other uh, broader questions. So I think we'll start. Should uh, we start with prayer? Why don't you pray? We'll start with prayer. Yeah. Let's do that. That's good a good, idea. good suggestion. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for uh, where you have brought us this weekend. We thank you for John and for how you've used him this weekend to expound this amazing letter written to the Ephesian church 2,000 years ago, but yet speaks uh, loudly and boldly uh, to us today. And Father, we ask now that we would know uh, your help, um, that John would know the help of your Spirit as we look further into some some things um, that you would bless us during this time and that as we look at your word again, that you would be glorified and magnified in our midst. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. So we'll start with an easy one, going right back to Friday evening, election and predestination. Is that okay, John? Far away. Um, If I can get the question, which I've set in this very organized pile. Uh, What does it mean by predestination or election? Ephesians 1, verse 5. Um, And really, the clarifying question here, I believe that not everyone will be saved, but God has given men and women free will to either accept or reject him. So that's at least two questions, isn't it? Kind of. Uh, What does it mean, and how does it relate to, quotes, free will? Is that right? Yes. If I understood the question correctly. Um, what does it mean? It means what it says. Um, so, Ephesians 1 verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Well, I understand all the words in that sentence. I think most of us understand the words in that sentence. Whether we find it hard to accept is another matter, whether, you know, whether we're willing to accept it. But I, I just think it means that from God's perspective... Uh, he did make a choice before the creation of the world of who would be in Christ and who would not. Now that raises all kinds of questions, I know, in our minds. Well, you know, is that arbitrary and is that fair? And um, How come I'm chosen if I am and some others are not? Um, but I think what it means is fairly straightforward. And if you accept that that's what it means, then the predestination seems to be to follow on from that choice. If you look at how Paul seems to think, well, certainly how he expresses himself in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, having talked about the choice that God made of us in Christ before the the creation of the world, uh, he makes clear that the purpose is that that we be set apart for God and blameless in his sight, um, 
and that in his love he predestined us. So it follows from his choice. So in a sense, election is a prior thing. And then what is the, the trajectory of that election, if you like? It's predestined to be adopted as, as his sons through Jesus Christ. So um, it's all of a piece, in my understanding. Anyway, maybe I've just got a small mind and can't understand too many things at once. But uh, for me, that, that just fits with, well, if he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world it was for a purpose and the purpose would, was that we should be adopted into God's wonderful family um, and experience all the, the blessings and benefits that are described therein uh, and the transforming power of the spirit as, as we go on to read later so we begin to be changed to be more like Christ having been chosen to belong to Christ's family if you like so uh, I, I don't think the you know, what it means is it's too difficult to understand. But does anyone want to come back on that and say, but they just don't get it? Now, whether we accept it is another matter. But what it is that we're being asked to accept, I think is relatively straightforward. Or have I missed something? Someone help, help us. Or is Calvin associated with this verse? Um, yes. Calvin certainly commented on this verse and expressed his views, yeah, uh, as have many others uh, before think, and since. I think uh, a common objection to understanding uh, that God predestines and elects people, individual people, you and I, um, who corporately make up the church, is that some would read it and say that God has predestined the effects, as you've mentioned, but you've said, you know, he's predestined that we become like mm-hmm. Christ rather than individuals mm-hmm. themselves, that they would become like Christ. He's predestined the, the end, which I think you've rightly said confuses and makes a dichotomy there because it's both and. Both and? Both and he predestines individuals to become like Christ. The, yeah. the end and. Yes. If that makes sense. That's an yeah. objection that I've, I've heard. And what, um, What's the objection then? Um, that it's, Paul's not talking here about predestining individuals. He's <coughs> talking about oh. God predestining that people bec- that, yeah. that his church would become like Christ, which again it, I think it's both and, isn't yeah. it? As you say, uh, I think the maybe one helpful way of putting it, at least I find this helpful, is that predestination is a doctrine of comfort for the Christian. It's not meant to be a part of our evangelistic strategy, where we you know we're talking to a friend and we're supposed to be thinking, I wonder if they're predestined or not. Um, is it worth carrying on this conversation or not? That's not, the, that's not the function of the teaching of the doctrine of predestination in Scripture. The function of the teaching is to uh, comfort the Christian that, that God has got, he's not only chosen them, but he's chosen them for a purpose, that they be like Christ. So if you look, um, it's perhaps, if you compare that with Romans 8, which would be one of the other classic passages on this, It comes immediately after. This is a Romans eight twenty-eight to thirty. You notice that the predestination, which is woven into the fabric of this paragraph, uh, comes after something that we know, which is a verse that probably, if you're anything like me, you, you run to virtually more often than any other verse in the Bible for comfort. We know that 
in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Don't you take enormous comfort from that? Think of your life. Think of your past. You don't know your future, but you know your past to some degree anyway. And that God has been weaving that into his purposes for your good. No, really, he has. That's what Paul says. We know that. We need to be constantly reminded of it, but we know that. That is for our comfort. We who've been called according to God's purpose. What is God's purpose? Well, he then goes back to where Ephesians 1, 3, or 4 rather, goes, goes back. For those God foreknew. Now, I think actually that's um, better translated, those God chose. I think the, the actual meaning of that word is better translated, for those God chose. So in other words, I think it's exactly parallel with Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Those God chose, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That the Son might be the firstborn or the elder brother amongst many brothers, the supreme brother amongst many brothers and sisters. So you've got this wonderful picture that all the circumstances of our life, the all things that happen to us, God is working for our good so that it fits in with the purpose of his election of us before the creation of the world that all had it in mind. It was always aiming in this direction that we would be conformed to the likeness of his son. So the circumstances of life that we go through are shaping us in God's purposes that we grow more like the Lord Jesus. And we know that. And we need to be constantly reminded of it. And it is such an encouragement to know that that is God's purpose in all of these circumstances of life. So that's why I think if you look at Romans 8.29, you see predestination as woven in to great encouragement for the Christian. It's a doctrine of, of comfort and encouragement for the Christian believer to see that God is working out his purposes in their life and that it was always this way and that we're, we're destined to be fully conformed to the likeness of Christ when he returns or we die, uh, whichever comes first. But meantime, all the circumstances of life are fitting in with that destiny that he has for us. That The most important thing in our lives is that we grow more like Jesus. Full stop. End of story. Very good. Now, the other question, though, to be fair, about how it fits in. I think there's, I, I'm a believer in compatibilism in this area of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In other words, that from God's point of view, he is completely sovereign. Um, from our point of view... We have full responsibility for our lives. How do you square those logically? I don't know. But then I take comfort in the fact that my brain is probably a little smaller than God's. Uh, and I think if you work on that presumption that God actually has got a bigger brain than us and can understand things and how they fit together in a way that we struggle with and perhaps can never understand how they fit together, then let God be God and every man a liar or at least admit that he can't understand it. But if God says these two things fit and I can't work out how they fit, but they're both taught in Scripture, then I say, okay, I will accept both of these things and I won't complain about the fact that my brain's not quite big enough to work out how they fit together. I'll just accept I'm not God. It's quite a helpful thing to remind oneself every day. Um, what does Ephesians mean or Paul mean? In Ephesians chapter 1, when talking about this question about the, the cosmological purpose, bringing everything under the head of Christ, the church uh, and the world are going to the same, same place under the headship of Christ. Does that mean that the world is one day all going to uh, be saved? Are they all going to submit to Christ like the church? 
I think it obviously doesn't mean that everyone's going to be saved. Uh, but I think it does mean what Philippians 2 talks about when it says that there is coming a day when every knee shall bow, which is actually quoting the Old Testament. It's always been God's purpose that every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus. The only question is whether you willingly and joyfully bow and say, wow, that's my Lord Jesus. It was all worth it. Uh, I'm so thrilled to see him with my own eyes. Or whether we, as it were, bow begrudgingly or in terror, thinking, oh, so he was the Lord. Those Christians were right. This is it. But we will bow the knee. All of mankind. So I think it's talking about the future reality when Jesus is seen to be Lord and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Christian believer gladly, the non-Christian unbeliever inevitably. Um, in last night's talk you mentioned uh, that filled in the Spirit is better understood as filled by the Spirit. Yeah. Is there a sense elsewhere in Scripture where um, we are filled with the Spirit? Where does it say that then? Someone help us. Or maybe the questioner has got a particular reference in mind. All this gone quiet. Maybe the reference would be to some of the times in Acts and Stephen filled with the Spirit, perhaps. Something like that. The questioner could maybe... Let's have those again, Acts. 2-4 was the first one. And the other one was... I'm not entirely sure, is the honest answer. Um, I'm thinking, I was going to say, on my feet, it's really on my bottom, isn't it? Um, uh, <laughs> excuse me, sorry about that. Um, whether these can be interpreted in the light of Ephesians 1, um, I mean, you have to, as a rule of interpretation, interpret everything rightly in context. Um, John the Baptist, I was just looking at the cross-reference in my Bible, takes us to Luke one fifteen about John the Baptist being filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, When the spirit, I mean, I, that may be right, overflowing abundance is being suggested. Um, I think what, what, I, what I said and what I think is persuasive in Ephesians is the idea that there's a sort of Trinitarian element, that, that the, the spirit enables the reality of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to be 
present in our lives, um, which certainly fits with Jesus' teaching in John, doesn't it? That I, I will, you know, I, and it's connected with the Spirit's work in John, sort of fifteen, is it that you know we will come and uh, live in the lives of believers. We, the Father and the Son, by the Spirit, will come and live in the life of the believer. Isn't that what Jesus said in John fifteen? Um, so. John 14, I beg your pardon. Um, Thank you very much. It's verse 23, isn't it? If anyone loves me... uh, John 14:23 He will obey my teaching my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him we the father and i the father and the son um, and it's all in the concept, context of the promise of the holy spirit so it seems to me that it's saying that the father and the son will come to live in the life of the believer which is an extraordinary thought isn't it that if you're a believer, you have God the Father and God the Son somehow, really, truly, living in your life. How? By means of the Holy Spirit. So it's by the Holy Spirit that these realities become realities in our lives. So I suppose I'm thinking that it, it's, it would be fair to understand the Acts references, um, and maybe even the Luke reference to John the Baptist as... as alluding to the same reality that the Spirit enables. The Spirit lives in us, so it's not that he's kind of outside and the Father and the Son are are inside, but that by the Spirit living in us, he brings the reality of the the Trinity into our lives, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Um, So, yeah. Okay. Good. Maybe a good one to continue around the, the dinner table. That's a polite way of saying a very unsatisfactory answer. (laughs) (laughs) These English people have a great sense of humor. Um, Is there a place for seeking personal guidance, and how should we discern this? I suppose as a kickback against, uh, you know, Paul's will of God. It's not maybe talking about personal. Is there a place for that in the Christian life? How should we discern well, that it's this? primarily talking about um, uh, God is much more concerned about our, our godliness than he is about our, um, our guidance or our lo- you know, who we are rather than where we live. Um, so it really doesn't matter whether you live in Belfast or Dublin or London or wherever um, if you're a Christian. It really doesn't matter. A hundred years from now, it's not going to matter. Um, what matters is is much more the kind of person you are, the character that you're building, whether you're growing more like the Lord Jesus, whether you're living in daily dependence upon him, whether you're seeking to tell others the good news of the Lord Jesus, whether you're seeking to be a positive contributor to the life of the church, as we've been thinking this weekend. 
But of course, um, <clears throat> we need to work out where we should live. You can't live in Belfast and Dublin and London at the same time. You can only live in one of them. Uh, so you do have to make decisions. Uh, I th- the, the most helpful book I've ever read on the subject of guidance, I know not everyone likes it, but is Guidance and the Voice of God uh, by Tony Payne and Phil- Philip Jensen, which I wish had been published when I was younger, but wasn't. Um, and it basically says there are three categories of decision that we make. Uh, one is very simple because it's moral. It's right or wrong. You know, do I have an affair with my neighbor's wife? No, not if I'm a Christian. Don't have to think long about that one. Tempted as I might be by her beauty or whatever. No, that's wrong. So decision made. Then there's, um, there's trivial issues, which would be the third category. You know, I'm, I'm walking around the second-hand car lot, uh, and there are two cars of the sort that I'm looking for. And one is red and one is black. And I say, Lord, please help me choose. Which is the color that you want me to have? Uh, <laughs> I don't think the Lord he hears that prayer. I don't think he'll bother to, bother to answer it, apart from maybe to say, it really doesn't matter. Um, so there are trivial issues where it really doesn't matter. Um, I'll come on to five, God's five answers to prayer in a moment, if you like. Uh, but um, Then there's the big category in the middle, which is wisdom issues. Where, where it's not unimportant, like the color of our car, but it's not clearly guided morally, like should I sleep with my neighbor's wife or husband or whatever. Um, so it's neither a moral question nor a trivial question. It's in this whole big area as we see it. Maybe God sees it as a small area, but we see it as a big area of wisdom. Uh, and I think the Bible is very helpful in... Uh, at least two areas where it talks about, for example, in the Proverbs, make plans by taking advice. So we take advice. We don't make big decisions, especially, where we need a lot of wisdom on our own. We take advice from wise, godly, mature Christian friends um, and mentors, older Christians in the church. And God promises wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to them. Not it might, it will. So there's a promise. And it's not kind of one of those promises where you think, well, I wonder if that applies to us directly or not. It clearly, if anyone lacks wisdom. Um, so it seems to me there's that. And then the, I suppose the third thing um, is... Uh, that we believe God is sovereign over circumstances. So he's working all things for the good of those who love him. So as we look at the circumstances, um, God closes doors. Uh, And we think, okay, God shuts doors and no one can open them. But God also opens doors and no one can shut them, as it says it in Revelation. So so we observe his um, hand upon the circumstances of our life. Certainly, you know, my grand old age, looking back, I... I can think of most of the sort of big decision times in my life where I was wondering, you know, do I, do I go this way, that way, or the other? Uh, what I actually thought ahead um, nearly always never worked out. What I thought ahead would, would work out, it, ne- it nearly always never did. Um, but I don't look back thinking, uh, oh dear, I've really missed the way hundreds of times. Um, I just think, well, God's sovereign over circumstances. The church that I thought would have thought I was just the person they wanted. 
uh, rang me up and said, um, thanks but no thanks. Oh, oh well, that's very humbling. Um, God must have something else for me. So um, his sovereign control over all the circumstances, big and small in life, I think is, is an important factor in the equation. But I don't know whether I'm answering the question. Um, let me say one of the, the great things I love about that book, Guidance and the Voice of God. Um, it kicks right into touch, in fact, over the stand, the idea of a plan B in your life. I, met, I remember meeting a Christian some years ago who was in his 60s, and he basically said to me, lovely Christian guy, that he felt that when he was about 21, he'd taken a wrong turn in life, and everything else since then, the last 40 years, he'd been on plan B. You know, he was kind of out, of, he got out of the Lord's will, so to speak, and ever since then, he'd been kind of muddling along, having missed the turning when he was 21. I won't bother you, bore you with the details. Um, and that is a very common view. I don't know how many of you hold that. Maybe feel that you took a wrong turn at a critical point in your life. And ever since, you've suffered the consequences. Um, now, I'm not saying there may not be long-term consequences for acts. I mean, you know, if you murder someone and you get locked up, I would suggest that probably has a fairly large impact on a significant portion of your life thereafter. Um, but the idea that, you know, in terms of not doing something wrong, but just making an unwise choice, um, that somehow we're, we're out of God's will now, and will we ever get back into it? That seriously uh, underestimates our sinfulness. What I mean is, if you think you could just make one bad choice, age 21, and now be on plan B, gracious me, only one bad choice? Who do you think you are? If you can make such a bad, you'll make dozens of bad choices. Plan B, you're on plan ZZZ by now. You know, it really seriously underestimates our sinfulness and it seriously underestimates God's sovereign control and the truth of Romans 8.28. We know that God works everything for the good. And if something God says is good, it's going to be good. It really is going to be good. Um, so your circumstances right now, as you sit in this room, your circumstances, your circumstances in life, are good. You are in a good place if you're trusting in the Lord. You're not in a bad place. You're not being punished by God for some terrible choice you made or thing you did or said or whatever a few years ago. So there is no plan B. There is just plan A. And that's a great comfort to know. Do you want to know the five answers to prayer? I'm going to tell you, aren't I? Um, Go for it. Yes? No? Later? Not yet? What was that, Dan? Uh, yes. Do it yourself. <clears throat> Lord, the garden needs doing again. Would you send someone to help mow the lawn? Do it yourself, mate. Um... And mind your own business. Lord, what am I going to be doing in five years' time? Will I get married? Who will it be? Mind your own business. Very good. Ephesians 6, 
12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood is this flesh and blood referring to the flesh and bl blood of other people or our own flesh and blood of our sinful nature that's a good question Ephesians 6.12 uh, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood is this flesh and blood referring to the flesh and blood of other people or our own flesh and blood of our sinful nature I suppose my my sense is that the plain reading of the text is that it's flesh and blood is a way of talking about humans uh, humanity um, and that the contrast is between human enemies and non-human enemies um, the powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil. Um, and that the enemies in both cases are outside of us. It doesn't say, I think if Paul had intended to mean our own struggle, which he talks about in other places with the sinful human nature, our flesh, um, he'd have probably put in the, uh, is it a possessive pronoun? Our? Our flesh and blood against our flesh and blood? I think he'd have probably put that in to make it clear. Um, and the word flesh or sarx as it is in Greek, it's, it's you know, again, you, can't, you interpret it in context as to whether it just means human flesh that we all have, as we said here, or whether it means the sinful nature within us, which is a spiritual, not a physical thing. So I think probably it's talking just about, we're not talking about human enemies that we're fighting against, we're talking about supernatural enemies. That would be my read on it. Very serious question here. Um, what is the best bargain you've ever got? <sighs> you know, that is really hard to answer because I get so many. Um, best bargain. Oh, I'd have to think. I, it's not coming to mind. I told you about it last week. Too numerous. Too numerous, exactly. I don't know where to begin. No, I can't. I, sorry, I, I can't actually think what the best one is um, might come to me would you be excited on. at around the dinner table if people came and told you the best bargain that they'd ever got would you get no, a kick out of that no, no I wouldn't I'd be just envious oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that then lest your brother stumbles <laughs> apologies everyone Um, hopefully during the weekend you noticed um, the intentionality of the, the songs and the hymns that we, we sing during the sessions. Um, it's something that um, we, we love singing. We've, we're going to have a question here about singing styles because it was talked about in Ephesians. Um, but maybe, just, just to make it clear for some of you that maybe have been here for the first time, we love old songs and new songs. We love tr traditional songs and contemporary ones and uh, really for us the big thing is, is are they biblical and um, we love that we can sing about things that we are reading right now in the scripture we can, that the people in the past and uh, Christian history have you know been led in a sense to, to put some of scripture into songs and we can sing them Ephesians talks about singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs John what's your view on Christian singing styles, we're probably all from a, a diverse range of different churches with different styles. What, what does that 
mean? Well, uh, that's a good question. I'll, I'll try and answer it in a moment. Let me just say I was talking with Alan, who's um, been playing for us last, um, well, yesterday and today. Uh, and I was interested because I was asking him actually about the songs, and he was saying that they're not that that you guys who are organising things uh, are not trying to give a model as to how things might be done back in your church. Uh, you know, we all know the the wonderful Getty Town End repertoire, um, but trying to introduce some new songs, maybe or some old, some new old songs um, that you might consider adding to your repertoire. And yet again, I was asking, would, would you in your church sing that number of verses, for example? He said, oh, no, no, but, but they can take it at this weekend. So, you know, it's a compliment to you guys that we sang 17 verses this morning. You know. uh, uh, in terms of musical style, um, I, I think you have to be aware that it's constantly evolving, uh, as our culture is constantly evolving. Um, so to try and fix a particular style as this is the best Christian music style, I think is a failure to understand that we're in a constantly evolving culture, musically as well as in every other way. It's rather like Bible translations. You know, I think there will always be a need for updating versions of the Bible into whatever your mother tongue is. Um, now we have an embarrassment of riches, I know, in, in English Bible translations. So back to musical styles. Uh, I have developed... What I think is a relative, I hope is that you can tell me if you like whether you think this works as a, a set of criteria. Um, so when I'm involved in a church, I say every song has to pass the bustle test. Bustle is an acronym for B U S L. Uh, it needs to be biblical, not not directly quoting scripture necessarily, but every phrase to be compatible with scripture and expressing truth from scripture. Um, it has to be understandable. Um, I think there's certainly a verse of one of the songs we sang twice this weekend, which I would cut out. Uh, the first time we sang it, I was looking at the last two lines and thinking, what? I don't understand it, but I'll sing it, just in case anyone notices. Uh, and this morning, I, I jumped ahead. I have to confess, I jumped ahead when, we, when the verse went up to the last two lines, thinking, I, I, what, what do they mean? Uh, and I think I just about worked out what they meant. But... Uh, I don't think it was naturally understandable. So I want every song we sing um, to be understandable. Now, you know, making certain assumptions about people's literary and uh, mental capabilities and all the We're rest of it. We're very advanced here. Ah, well, that's what I, I... I forgot I was in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, singable. In other words, there are some songs which are thoroughly biblical. You can understand them, but they are utterly unsingable in congregational singing. So I'm afraid, unless someone thinks of a new tune... Uh, we're going to have to leave them on one side, is my, is my approach. You know, and if after the sort of third time you sing it in the congregation, you still, everyone's going, uh, um, you know, it's not single. And lyrical, uh, by which I mean, am I, is, is the word naff rude? No. Okay. Um, thank you, I'm just checking my vocabulary here. Um, what I mean by ly- lyrical, n- that it doesn't have naff words. I was just checking the word naff wasn't rude in Northern Ireland. Uh, uh, you know, there's kind of, Lord, we just really want to kind of, you know, thank you. Um, if it actually says that up on the screen, you're thinking, oh, dear, oh, dear. This is bad words. Uh, now, I'm not meaning that you have to have high-flown rhetoric uh, at all. You can have simple words, but at least let them be good words. Um, so uh, I, will, I will allow songs. I will question songs. We have a staff meeting. We will question, I will question, and others I will encourage to 
um, assess all the singing. Uh, in terms of style, that, that, that's not quite style, is it? That's more to do with wording. Um, I think in terms of style, you just need to keep evolving, but I would encourage having, in church life anyway, um, having a mixture of old and new, but be constantly wanting to evolve, so that means every now and then bringing in a new song. Um, came across a great new website that our music director pointed me to a couple of weeks ago called Resound, uh, which is largely... Well, we, we sang a new one last week, which is a uh, great new um, mu- uh, Christmas song. In the Beginning, I think it's called. So uh, trying to find resources. I'm rabbiting on. Shut me up, please. Good. Um, what practical tips do you have for nurturing unity in the church? Well, I think just do what Ephesians says, basically. Ephesians 4.2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I think if, if you go home and do that for the rest of your life, I think that'll be brilliant. Again, another uh, question relating to spiritual uh, warfare. What power does the devil have over the Christian um, can he implant thoughts in our minds? That's the question. What influence does he have? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, the influence of the devil. Um, part of me wants to distinguish between influence and power, if that's a fair distinction. In other words, I think the devil has <clears throat> no power at all over the Christian. But I think he has influence. Now, you may say that's a bit of a tight, fine, semantic distinction, but I think what I'm trying to say is that uh, one of his lies is, I've got power over you. It's not true. If we're Christ, if we're in Christ, he has no power. His power has been removed from him in relation to us. He's been disarmed because, remember, he's the accuser, and what he does is he accuses the brethren before God. He accuses Christians before God and his judgment. And he points out things, presumably, that we've done wrong. Um, now, we know from Colossians that he's been disarmed because all the details of the charges against us have been nailed to the cross. So he has no evidence against us. It's all been taken away out of his kind of lawyer's attaché case when he opens it in court. It's empty. You know, he goes, what? I had loads of stuff against you. Where has it all gone? The answer is it's been taken away Christ has taken it and he's nailed it to the cross and it's all been dealt with. So there's nothing against you. Uh, So in that regard, he has no power to accuse. Um, But I think he does have power to influence. Does he have the power to inject thoughts into our our minds? I don't think there's anything explicit in the scripture on this, but I think implicitly we could work out that when Jesus was tempted, for example, and he was tempted in his humanity, um, how did the devil get access to him? Well, maybe he actually physically appeared and spoke to him, we're not told. Maybe, maybe he just injected the thoughts into Jesus' mind. Um, if it's the latter, then that would be, if you like, precedent for, or suggestive that he is able to implant thoughts into our minds. So I'm not sure we're actually told on that. I think it's possible. If it's not, he's certainly able to make suggestions from outside, is he not? Um, and therefore, 
that from outside somehow gets into our mind. So maybe it all comes to the same thing. Mm. Um, and it's not a distinction we need to make. You know, it, does he get inside or is it from outside? Well, it's from outside and gets inside. So it comes to the same thing, doesn't it? So I think he probably does. Um, but then again, you read James, and James is very adamant that we don't blame the devil when we get tempted. Um, very striking, isn't it? Uh, James 1.13, he's defending God. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempt, tempted when, by the devil implanting thoughts into his mind. Does that, is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. He says, each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. So it's our sinful human natures, which are the first place we are to look to if we want to isolate the source of the, inflex- in the infection. Um, it's our own evil desires within us, which we will not, will not be eradicated until the last day. So, um, I think the devil has an influence, is able to have an influence upon us, although he's like a, he's like a sort of dog on a leash. God has got him. He's not free. Um, but he's not able to accuse us of anything. He doesn't have that power. Well, I think we'll 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 end at that. Perfect.